This is Abby, and you are listening to Upsound. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take a big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby. I'm here reporting from Multi Studio in Kansas City. And today I'm joined by Nolan Gray, research director for California Yimby and author of a recently published book called Arbitrary Lines How Zoning Broke the American City and how to fix it. So Nolan, we actually met at CNU, but he was speaking at the Strong Towns National Gathering about a month ago. And I'm really glad that we were able to connect and you're able to join us on the show today. Thanks so much, Abby. It's a pleasure to be here. And yeah, the Strong Towns National Gathering was fantastic. Well, uh, I was not able to attend your session, unfortunately, because I was doing some recording at the time, but I heard that you gave a great session and had a lot of people attending it. So it's great that you were able to be on the docket for that. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think these the kinds of things that Strong Towns members are concerned about and the types of things that Yimbies are up to, I think there's a huge amount of overlap. So to the extent that we can, you know, all be singing from the same hymn sheet and working together, I think there's almost unlimited potential here in terms of building stronger communities and towns and cities. Yeah, most definitely. Before we get into the article today, it would be really great for listeners who may not be in the Gimby conversation or really entrenched in like zoning reform uh, movement discussions. It would be great to kind of talk a little bit about yourself and your book and how you entered into this world of thinking about zoning all the time. <laughs> Which is something that's so so much fun to be thinking about. Yeah, once upon a time, I lived a happy, normal life and did not think about zoning. Uh, and then <laughs> somewhere, it all went downhill. Yeah. I, you know, I've always had a deep love for cities. You know, I think I was reading some of the early Strongtown stuff very early on, reading blogs like Market Urbanism, uh, and it just increasingly hit me the extent to which a lot of the rules and regulations and norms that we have on the books are building communities that are fundamentally unaffordable, inequitable, unsustainable, in many cases, stagnant by design. And the more I understood the way our cities are actually planned, the more I realized that policies like zoning were just not reflecting the values and planning goals that we have today. I went to planning school at Rutgers University. I worked as a city planner in New York City, which was an incredible experience. And uh, I eventually felt that I wanted to write a book on zoning. Uh, you know, I kept having this issue where folks would say to me, you know, I'm interested in zoning and what it means for our cities, but what should I go read? And there really wasn't a, a great go-to text that sort of laid it out and summarized the issues and summarized where we might go from here. And that's what I was trying to do with Arbitrary Lines. What does your book kind of talk about within Arbitrary Lines? If you can kind of set out some of the insights that came out of that project. Yeah. So there's there's three parts to the book. The first Part one is explaining what zoning is and where it comes from. Uh, I talk about the origins of zoning in the 19-teens, the often explicitly segregationist origins of a lot of these rules. I explain, you know, zoning is really trying to do two things, segregate uses and restrict densities, um, and essentially put our cities in a straitjacket saying exactly what you can and can't build on every single parcel in the city. 
In many cases, these rules were written decades ago and reflect a very different view of what a city can and should look like. Um, in part two, I talk about some of the costs of our current rules. So I talk about how, in many cases, zoning rules make it illegal to build the types of infill, missing middle housing that our communities need. In many cases, these zoning rules uh, force the housing that is built to be more expensive through things like minimum lot sizes, or it just endlessly delays the process and opens up new development to NIMBY opposition, not in my backyard opposition. The second too is uh, another thing that I really want to highlight is I mentioned this previously, but in many cases, these rules were explicitly designed to segregate our communities, both on the basis of, of class, but subtextually on the basis of race and build communities where different neighborhoods would uh, would be, uh, you know, heavily segregated by income and race. That's sort of the world we've built today. Finally, I talk about the sustainability piece. You know, I mean, if we're going to build a sustainable future, talking about how we build our cities is absolutely essential to that. But in almost every major American city today, we have a collection of zoning rules that uh, assume auto dependence, assume that you're going to have to get in a car to go to a maybe what might have once been a corner grocery store to get in your car to go to work. Uh, you're not going to have options about how you get around. In many cases, we explicitly write this into law with stuff like minimum parking requirements, which say that you legally cannot build a storefront or a small apartment building without building a giant sprawling parking lot or a parking garage, which of course, as Strong Towns listeners will know, you know, aren't even full even on Black Friday. So we have these rules that are essentially deforming our city and, and, and forcing it into this pattern of growth that's unaffordable, inequitable, and unsustainable. And in the book I talk about, part three, I talk about some of the exciting things that I think are happening to fix this. So of course, that's a very unhappy picture, right? Like that that's it, you know, you when you understand the impact that zoning is having on many of our communities, it it, it it's a little bit distressing. But we are in this once in a generation opportunity here where many cities and states are reckoning with these rules. You have cities that are scrapping policies like single family zoning, which don't allow you to build small multifamily buildings or townhouses in most of our communities. They're rethinking our rules around things like corner retail or home-based businesses, the types of small local neighborhood focused commerce that help to build more sustainable communities. They're reckoning with all the rules that just force any new infill to go through long and difficult uh, discretionary entitlement processes. So I talk a little bit that, about that in the book. I also make a bolder case that I think actually, you know, what do we want land use planning to do? You know, land use planning, it's not an argument against land use planning. It's an argument against the way we've operationalized it in the US, which is zoning. I actually think land use planning is, of course, very important. We have to have some rules in place to make sure that you don't have one neighbor doing things that dramatically lowers the quality of life of another neighbor, all on board with that. We need rules to make sure that growth is coordinated with new infrastructure. We know we need that, and we know that the current system has failed, but what would it look like to build a system that better achieves our planning goals? And this is part of you know, the, the bigger picture sort of Hail Mary at the end to try to get more planners and activists and, and developers and everybody who's a stakeholder in the process to think, you know, what do we want land use planning to do? We know the project of zoning has failed, but the good news is we are not stuck in that system. We can we can fundamentally rethink the way we uh, plan and build our cities, just as previous generations have. And that's something that I think Strong Towns listeners, of course, won't need to be told twice. You know, we have incredible opportunity here to fundamentally rethink the rules that, that shape our cities for the better. Well, that's a fantastic overview, and I think a really good setup for the article that we're talking about today because zoning is one of those things that many people don't understand. It's invisible. It's what's going on, I guess, under under everything else in terms of the regulatory influences. And 
public housing is something that I think another group within the overall housing debate kind of sees as maybe a silver bullet solution. And this article in particular, this was published by Adam Millsap and Forbes, and it is entitled Zoning Reforms, Not Public Housing Will Fix Rhode Island's Housing Problem. So Rhode Island, like everywhere else in the United States and and beyond has a housing problem, a housing crisis, and it's looking for new ways to build public housing and is looking at a couple of bills that would create a $50 million revolving loan fund that enables local housing authorities to build and operate multifamily units. So implementation of this would involve essentially financing 20-year government bonds and using uh, land bank properties that are owned by the government. And this would be a hybrid model that has 20% of units being deeply affordable, 10% being moderately affordable, and then the rest being market rate. The proposals are currently being supported by the housing authorities and the labor unions, but the author of this article is essentially arguing that the private sector is unable to meet the current and past needs of, of housing due to the regulatory hurdles that have been set up and that Rhode Island is essentially a very challenging, one of the most challenging places to actually build new housing. And so his primary critique, he he goes into, I think, a number of critiques around how you actually do public housing and vouchers versus building housing, which maybe we don't need to get into too much detail about. But he really talks about how this plan does not address restrictive land use regulations that are the root cause of high housing prices, no matter how well-meaning these kinds of efforts are. So I kind of want to talk about how, how these two conversations intersect with one another, perhaps. And, you know, in this article, a little bit, they're, they're pitted against one another. Do you see it that way? Well, you know, I, I think here at California Yembe, as with most Yembe groups, I think we take a yes and approach to the issue. I think there's some truth to the matter that if we are not dealing with the underlying barriers to housing production, it probably doesn't matter how much money we spend on housing, right? So so let me just preface this a little bit more. I think every, even the more conservative Yembe's, and it, the beautiful thing about it is, as with strong towns, you know, we have people from all across the spectrum, ideological, partisan spectrum. Uh, that's how you know you're right, by the way. You know, we have people from all, all, who come to the issue from all sides. And I think some folks might be a little bit more skeptical of social housing. Some folks might be more sympathetic to it. I think we would all agree on at least two things. One is, as long as you have strict barriers in place that make it really, really hard to build a lot of inherently affordable or naturally occurring affordable housing at scale, that's things like small multifamily units, maybe a condos, townhouses, maybe for folks who are coming out of uh, homelessness, uh, things like single room occupancies. If you don't have rules in place that allow for a steady pipeline of those new homes, then it's throwing money at the problem doesn't necessarily solve it. Now, I think everybody would agree that we also need to be having certain programs in place to make sure that we're getting housing built at all income levels. So even in a context of what we call housing abundance, even in a case where we removed a lot of these artificial barriers to building inherently affordable infill housing, there would still be certain people who need public support to find affordable, decent housing. And I think you can find a pretty wide consensus around uh, policies like uh, expanded housing vouchers that essentially come in and say, hey, if you're lower income, pay what you can, and then the government will kick in the rest of the rent to make sure that you can get a decent home. 
or policies like the low income housing tax credit, which is actually a social housing program that America kind of already has on the books that produces hundreds of thousands uh, of units. I think about it almost exactly 100,000 units every year. I think folks, folks would quibble with the details here, but I think generally the YIMBY approach is, is yes and. Let's remove a lot of these regulatory barriers uh, and then kick in subsidies and thoughtful public interventions uh, to, to, to fully solve the housing problem. But I think something that, that Adam is raising that I do think is really important is that if we only do the, the public subsidy side of it and don't remove the regulatory barriers to mass housing of new construction, housing construction, I worry that, that, that we won't actually be meaningfully solving the problem. And that could actually lower public support for some of those other subsidies that we might have needed later on down the line. So for example, people will say, well, the last time we did this bond, we built some housing, but it didn't solve our problem and homes are just as expensive as they once were. So this is why even if you're just a social housing person, you have to be saying, let's also be doing this uh, uh, zoning and, 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 and land use entitlement regulatory reform to make sure that we're getting just a huge amount of housing uh, built. I would say too, another sort of pathway here for, for social housing is often, you know, and this is how many other countries actually structure their social housing programs, just allow uh, certain types of multifamily to be built and then acquiring those buildings after they're built and then subjecting them to deed restrictions or then reselling them at a subsidized rate to to more moderate income households. So I, I very much think it's, it's a yes and situation. And if these two sides of the housing equation can't work together, um, we're both going to fail. Both of our projects will fail. I think the yes and approach is really important because these two things are certainly not mutually exclusive. And thinking about how you address these things from a, a I guess, an, a government intervention standpoint, and it's layered, right? Regulations are one thing. There's also public programs that can be layered on top of a regulatory approach. And something that I think is worth noting from kind of the strong towns perspective, they talk a lot about return on investment of basically development in cities and why that's important to the tax base. And so restricting private sector housing that ultimately contributes to the tax base is, I think, also going to hinder the ability to do social programs. If you have a really strong, healthy tax base 20 years from now because you allowed things to develop, you're going to have the ability to uh, support the people who are not able to participate in the market because they are of the various very lowest income levels. And so it is a yes and approach. I resonate with, I think, the author's critique, whether whether he says it explicitly or not, but kind of this idea that, well, uh, building social housing is going to be some kind of silver bullet solution. It's definitely not, but it's an important part of the solution. On the other hand, zoning is also not necessarily a silver bullet solution, but it is a part of the overall approach. Do you see zoning reform as... Uh, I guess, a silver bullet to affordability. The way I put it in my book is that I think zoning liberalization is necessary, but not sufficient on almost any issue that you care about. I mean, you know, I, of course, at California YIMBY, we're deeply concerned with the housing affordability crisis here in California. But, you know, I, I've worked with folks in Midwestern contexts where you have Rust Belt towns that are staging a comeback and maybe housing affordability isn't so much of an issue there. But putting in place rules that allow for reinvestment and revitalization in a way that actually is fiscally and economically sustainable, those folks, they, they have to start with zoning uh, liberalization, right? If you have rules on the books that make it illegal uh, to build housing that's in- inherently affordable and sustainable, uh, you're never going to get there as a community. You know, I think I mentioned 
there are additional things that have to be done. Of course, you know, we need, I've talked about on the housing side, stuff like housing vouchers or, or dedicated affordable housing for folks at the margins. But as long as you're in a situation where, you know, as we are in California, where folks are talking about like subsidies for middle and upper middle class households, right? And it's like, those are households that actually can be served by the market in a housing abundance context, right? If we would just build enough housing, teachers and nurses and firefighters would have no trouble uh, finding affordable homes. Uh, now, of course, there are always groups that will always need support. But if we're at that stage of the conversation, those folks are so low on the list uh, for support so often, and they don't get nearly the support they need. And they're being priced out of their homes by folks who otherwise might have been buying newer homes that were being built. But of course, necessary, but not sufficient. You have to be doing additional things to make sure that everyone has access to affordable housing, you know, from a more a more planning orientation, right? Removing minimum parking requirements is good, for example. That's something I argue for consistently. That's I'm sure all your Shoopy still listeners know the argument for doing that. But there's an, a second really important part of Shoop's argument, just to play the example out a little bit more, which is you also need to be doing smart on-street parking management and saying, you know, we're not going to have this situation where we have this tragedy of the commons uh, for parking on streets. You know, and I talk about this in the book, even in a post-zoning context, we actually need more planning right? We need planners to be playing a more proactive role of dealing with things like externalities or spillover effects. We need planners to be playing a really proactive role in thinking through infrastructure requirements and the actual cost to, to fund all of that. To the extent that we kind of waste a lot of our planning capacity in this country, you know, counting up the number of parking spaces in strip malls or keeping fourplexes out of residential cul-de-sacs, I think we've wasted it. And actually, we can, re we can use some of that uh, state capacity much more effectively on targeted affordability programs or long-term planning to make sure that we have uh, environmentally and fiscally sustainable infrastructure. I, I couldn't agree more with that. As a planner, I, I've become quite discouraged, especially when I was first coming out of school, to learn that many planners spend all of their time doing zoning administration and just kind of reviewing projects against zoning codes. And, um, you know, that's not the worst thing you could be doing. But I, as people who go into planning and probably do that because they love cities and are interested in what makes places great and interesting, it is unfortunate that the talent and, you know, desire to improve cities can become kind of wasted on just kind of focusing on regulations and reviewing things based on regulations and actually managing the public realm and playing a role in that uh, so that it's not just traffic engineers that are doing that is incredibly important. And I also agree with you that zoning is not a silver bullet and providing more housing options is very important, I think, as a long-term strategy that maybe is in a, it's not a capital A affordability strategy, but it, it, it contributes to the overall affordability and options within a city. Have you given any thought to kind of the filtering discussion that people talk about where, of course, new construction is very expensive and it's going to serve the higher end of the market, but it's also going to move people out of existing housing and allow older housing to filter down so that people with moderate to lower incomes can actually benefit from the housing that exists. Is that in this discussion um, or in your book at all? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I think so. I think folks historically thought of filtering as we'll build the new luxury housing and then 20 or 30 years later, it'll get cheaper just because it's old and less desirable. But actually, I think there's a more robust understanding of filtering, which is what you're getting at, which is that even when a new 
luxury unit is built, overwhelmingly the folks moving into those units are folks who already live in homes in the existing community. And what they're doing is they're vacating that home and initiating a chain of moves where there's a chain of households or families in that community that get to upgrade to uh, housing that that might be better suited to their needs. We know from research, you know, I, I talk about this a paper by a scholar, Evan Mast, uh, and about 50% of, almost 50% of new luxury units trigger a move, a chain of moves that extends all the way down to the bottom of the housing market. So we know that in 50% of cases, we, we see the luxury units get built, we see the high prices, but what we don't see is that chain of moves at every single level of the housing market that relieves pressure in 50% of cases, at least, probably more, at the absolute bottom of the market. And and when you're talking about getting folks out of shelters or off the streets, that's absolutely essential. But then of course, everything in between, those are folks who are getting to upgrade and find housing units that are better suited to them uh, and their needs, or potentially at the bo- back at the bottom of the market, that might mean a family that's not priced out of their home and forced to leave the community altogether. So, you know, I, I think that's really important because you do hear a lot of that. You hear that pushback of, well, oh, you know, our community hasn't allowed any housing units in 50 years and we legalized it, you know, five or six townhouses and oh what do you know they were all over a million dollars. Well yes, you have to be doing you have to be doing broader upzonings and 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 you and all the other jurisdictions in your metropolitan area have to be allowing for more housing all at once. But then also too, even those 10 units that might be quite expensive uh, have relieved pressure at other levels of the housing market. There's a real seen and unseen component to it. We see the luxury units, but we don't see all of the pressure that's being relieved on units all across the market. So I, I don't know what the conversation is like in California, and maybe it's, you know, the conversation that's happening in the Midwest times 10, because it seems like that tends to be the case. But there does seem to be this kind of us versus them dichotomy around market rate housing. And, you know, when luxury units get built, people see that and it's a problem. And so uh, the only other solution is social housing. And right, the, the two aren't mutually exclusive, of course, but that that filtering discussion is not something that is usually part of the conversation. And I think it is really important because even if you are upzoning and yeah, the townhouses are expensive because it's expensive to build, it contributes to kind of this ecosystem. And also I often see situations where housing hasn't been built in a community for a very long time. And so once something is being built, it's it's expensive and and that's not okay with people. So anything that does get built has to be capital A affordable, which is something that's really hard to it's hard to reason with that logic um, when people aren't thinking about how different housing types work and that they don't all work in a bubble, right? That that housing interacts with with each other. Has that been something that you all have dealt with in California? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It takes a little bit of listening to folks, hearing folks out, and then also communicating, you know, what we know about how housing markets work, right? Take housing out of the picture. Imagine we did this with any other type of thing that folks need. Let's say refrigerators, refrigerators, right? Nobody on nobody listening in hates refrigerators. Let's imagine we had a situation where we had we we had a severe shortage of refrigerators, um, and we only allowed maybe ten percent or twenty five percent of the annual need for refrigerators to actually be built. 
And then, of course, they had to be built pursuant to a public process. We mandated that they had to be really, really big. Uh, we mandated that they had to be extremely energy efficient, et cetera, et cetera. We did all these things. you know. So we get, let's say, 100 refrigerators sold in our community, built and sold in our community. What do you think is going to happen in, with the prices there? They're going to be very, very expensive. All of these mandates are going to increase the cost. And then, of course, because there's such a limited supply, the price is going to be bid up quite high. Now, of course, folks respond to that by saying, well, look, this is proof that the market can't provide us with affordable refrigerators. Uh, the only refrigerators that are getting built and sold are really, really expensive. But of course, we actually know how to solve this problem, which is how we actually solve the problem of refrigerators. Something like 99% of Americans households have one. And it's because we just let the market keep building them and selling them until everybody had one who could afford to pay the cost for a refrigerator, which when you get a high level of competition here, it turns out to be we can get the price to where almost everybody can afford a refrigerator. Um now, of course, in those early stages, that's where it's tough, right? Because people say, well, but those we allowed a trickle of new refrigerators to be built and sold and they were all expensive. Yes, that's a signal that you actually need to be building and allowing a lot more of these to be built and sold. And then even in the near term, all of those households that bought one of these new expensive refrigerators had to sell their old one. And so households that couldn't previously get one were able to get one. When you talk about it in terms of almost any other asset or commodity, folks are like, yeah, that would be really weird if we did refrigerators or cars or... Um, you know, uh, bathtubs. If we if we did it, if we did what we do with housing for almost any other like necessity that people need, or food, right? I mean, imagine we had built a situation where most Americans had heavily uh, structured their retirement plan around a scarcity of bread, right? Like we would be in a very, very, very bad situation. We'd probably be in a permanent famine, which is the situation we're in with housing, where hundreds of thousands of people are homeless and many young households have no path to homeownership. If we did that with any other commodity, of course, we'd be like, well, that would be really, really destructive and unhealthy. And we should just release the floodgates and let people produce the food and stop making it illegal to build, to, 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 to grow and sell food. But with housing, I think people don't really make that connection, right? And it's partly for, the, for that reason that I was just getting at, which is that we've actually habituated Americans to think of, of their home as this investment asset that's going to constantly go up and up and up. Of course, many people in many parts of the country have been disabused of that notion by economic downturns. But in places like California, I think that's one of the struggles that we deal with, was that we've got this thing that's this necessity that we also treat uh, like an investment asset. That said, I do think if you make the case clearly uh, and respectfully and you listen to people's concerns, they start to get, yeah, okay, look, our community needs housing. I mean, that's where California is at, is even people who are beneficiaries of the housing of the California housing crisis they're realizing oh my my young adult children cannot afford a home within two or three hours of where I live if I want to downsize in my community I can't do that I leave my home and there are people living in tents under overpasses and in back alleys even people who are the beneficiaries of the California housing shortage are starting to realize okay this is completely out of control there's it's obvious that we have a housing shortage problem we need to act on it. One more thing I'll say too, and you mentioned you know, this about being turned up to 11 relative to the Midwest. The thing is, is that these issues are happening everywhere now. When I would give these talks before the pandemic, you know, I had to really justify, hey, this is an issue that's coming. You need to be ready for it. And of course, the pandemic and the labor shortages and material shortages and roller coaster interest rates and everything. Of course, that just made the California housing crisis go national. And now all across the Mountain West, all across the South, Increasingly, in places like the Midwest, folks are realizing, wow, we actually have this housing shortage. We have many of the same rules on the books that California had, and they're actually looking for some of the same solutions. You know, one of the one of the bits of silver lining of being at the most extreme form of housing affordability crisis is that we've been thinking about some of these solutions for a long time. We've done things like legalize accessory dwelling units, remove parking requirements, legalize multifamily and commercial areas. And so, I think you know, 
California, of course, we still have a lot of work to do on 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 solutions here. But actually, I think we've hit on a few things that would work really, really well in places that are dealing with these problems for the first time, like a Utah or a Michigan or a Georgia. Yeah, and I think as somebody living in the Midwest, we always feel like we have a crystal ball when looking at the coast. But so it's helpful to see how people in California and other places are thinking about these things and have been thinking about the issue for a really long time. I think one more thing that I'll ask is about the concept of inclusionary zoning, because I feel like that's where the social housing um, advocates intersect with people who think about zoning all of the time and in these conversations collide. Do you have any thoughts about the effectiveness of those kinds of policies and whether that is the right approach to dealing with um, providing mixed income housing from the private sector? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, I think of inclusionary zoning like I think of rent control, where there there are ways of doing it right that get, in this case, housing units built. There are a lot of ways of doing it wrong. So if you have an inclusionary zoning mandate that just doesn't pencil, it can basically mean that a lot of projects just don't happen. And we don't get, not only do we not get the affordable housing, we don't get all the market rate housing that would have relieved pressure on prices. You know, I think there are uh, smarter ways to design it. Of course, having these programs be voluntary. So if you did not get the balance right of percentage of units or the, the the income levels that you're targeting, then folks can just not opt into it. Having incentives that cover some of the cost of these programs, so maybe some sort of property tax relief or additional density, I think is uh, one way to make these things work. You know, one of the problems though is that, of course, so often uh, these things get politicized, and folks say, "Well, we want a higher percentage of units. We want more stricter mandates. Uh, you know, uh, we want we want lower levels of affordability." But then there's not actually the economics to make those things pencil, and so you don't get the units at all, and it can actually do quite a bit of harm. Yeah, that's been kind of the discussion here in Kansas City that we've had inclusionary zoning policies in place for a couple of years. And because we are a city surrounded by many, many suburbs on two sides of a state line, a lot of developers just opt out and go to the suburbs, which do happen to be urbanizing in little pockets where you can build mixed use multifamily development. So it's been kind of a challenge here. And I was wondering if in, in California and other places, there, there have been success stories. But ultimately, uh, I think the penciling of projects based on the requirements are the biggest challenge and a challenge in a lot of places that just hasn't been quite tweaked out um, to the extent that it needs to. You know, here in California, we have something called the state density bonus, where we say, if you set aside a certain number of units to be affordable, we're going to give you a whole bunch of extra density, and we're going to let you negotiate maybe some of the massing elements that might make it difficult for your for your project to get built. And we see a lot of uptake on that, and we see a lot of deed-restricted affordable units getting built on that. At the same time, you see many jurisdictions that say, well, we're going to adopt inclusionary zoning. We're just going to require that a third of all units be affordable at 50% AMI. And sorry for the planning jargon uh, to folks who are not planners tuning in. I will spare you uh, the abbreviations. And what, what do they get? They get no units. And in some cases, this is, I think, somewhat deliberate. I mean, th there are cases of jurisdictions knowingly adopting inclusionary zoning requirements that don't pencil with the understanding that this will actually stop uh, units from being built. And so, you know, I, I don't think you can say in broad brushstrokes one way or the other on the policy 
application is so 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 important with that policy and if you get the if you get the balance ever so slightly off you actually can have a program that that does a lot of harm you know i would say to jurisdictions before you even start trying to think about things like that look at the rules you have on the books is it illegal to build inherently affordable housing today okay well before you start mandating it consider removing some of the rules that make it illegal to build things like duplexes or accessory dwelling units or townhouses on you know 2500 square foot lots if it's illegal to build inherently affordable forms of housing, I don't necessarily think that there needs to be a huge discussion about coming in with unfunded mandates to be building affordable housing. Do the, do that low hanging fruit stuff that we know is not has no risk of backfiring from a housing affordability perspective. Absolutely, and it can cause a moratorium for new housing development without calling it a moratorium, which is hugely problematic. Thank you so much for joining me today. I think we can end it there. But before we finish, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything that we have been reading or watching or listening to or anything that has been uh, taking up our time these days. Nolan, hopefully you remembered this one <laughs> because I'm going to put you on the spot. What would you like to share to the audience? Oh, well, what I've been reading right now, I am reading uh, Married to the Mouse, which is a history of the relationship between Disney World and Orlando. It's fascinating. I mean, Disney had these big picture ideas about, you know, orig the original notion was to build, you know, a, 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 a model city. So it's fascinating as a, as a text on, you know, I think the, the apotheosis of this very modernist Robert Moses-y vision of building perfect cities. It's also just fascinating as a book on how cities and corporations interact. You know, that was very top of mind for me. I was in Queens during the whole Amazon HQ2 debacle and this kind of weird, creepy competition for corporations to come in and create jobs. And I think a, a, a vision of economic development that is uh, rightfully very repugnant to a lot of strong towns uh, folks, including myself, fascinating, fascinating book. And of course, it's very relevant to the news where we've got that whole fight between DeSantis and Disney. I've been thinking about that a lot. More professionally, of course, here at California MB, we're we're in the home stretch on the legislative session here. We have we have a few really, really exciting bills to to make it easier to build small lot and townhouse uh, homes. Uh, we have a project that uh, or a bill that will make it easier to build mixed income housing we have a bill to uh, allow for single uh, to encourage the state department of building standards to um, explore allowing single stair buildings, which I know is another thing that's, that's top of mind for a lot of folks. So we're really in the trenches on that right now. Things are going really well. Uh, maybe by the time this, this podcast comes out, a few of these bills will have advanced pretty far, uh, but that's top of mind right now. In my capacity there, I do the research to support that and find the numbers that we need and be able to make the case for legalizing mixed income housing of a range of typologies in our existing communities uh, all across California. So it's really exciting work. And of course, I've been working with colleagues in other states. I mentioned this previously, but all across the Mountain West, states are dealing with a housing affordability crisis for the first time. And they're saying, hey, what, what can we learn from states that have been at this a little bit longer than us? And states like Montana that are, are you know, legalizing accessory dwelling units or multifamily and residential areas. So that's, that's, you know, professionally, that's where I'm at right now. And, and I hope Strong Towns, you know, whatever state you're in, Strong Towns members, uh, my fellow Strong Towns members, I should say, get involved, you know, go find your local Yimby group, uh, whether it's at the state or local level, uh, get involved um, and, and start to be a part of this like amazing push for zoning reform that's happening all across the country. 
That's great. And it's very on brand of you to mention Disney as well, because I don't know if you realize this, but Chuck and his team go to Disney World like for their staff retreats. And he's a huge <laughs> fan of, of Disney. I don't know if it's Disney World or Disneyland, whichever one is in Orlando. Uh, that's World. the one they go to. Disney yeah. World. Thank you. For mine, I'll share a book that I'm reading uh, by Tim Urban called What's Our Problem? Um, at the risk of getting kicked out by Amazon, I have broken into Chuck's Audible account because he has like hundreds and hundreds of books. <laughs> I have my own account, but he he gave me his information on Upzone last week. So I've just been scrolling through. And if you work for Amazon, please don't kick me out. But the book has been really highly recommended by a lot of people in my life. Um, and it's basically about political tribalism and the history of human nature and kind of talks about a defense of liberalism. And um, I'm not super far into the book yet, so no spoilers. But I think the only negative thing is that this book is intentionally super illustrative. So the audible version actually does come with it and, it and it refers to illustrations that you can follow along with. But I think I really need to buy a physical copy of the book so I can read it at a pool over the summer. Um, so that's kind of my next step. I don't know if I'll get through the whole book on audible first and then get the book and go through it or, or not. Um, I, I love audiobooks, So I read your book um, as a, as an audiobook. So it's, Oh, that's cool. Yeah, well, you can you can multitask, which is pretty nice. So oh, I, I love it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I I've been listening to audiobooks like crazy recently. But yeah, I, I noticed I was reading uh some we had Francis Fukuyama over on our podcast, the California Yimby podcast, and uh, so I was reading through some of his stuff. And yeah, there's a bunch of references to charts and tables, and you're like ah, like you know, like drying off my hands as I'm doing dishes, and then like pulling up my phone to like see the chart. I love it, and you can consume so much more media that way. I you know put it at like 1.5 speed and take a walk. It's it's incredible. yeah yeah exactly. It's it's really nice. Well, thank you very much for joining me today. Hopefully, we can when when you get past some of your work on the single staircase reform, it would be great to hear about that because we covered it uh, just maybe a couple of months ago. And it was my first introduction to being stair pilled is what they call it <laughs> on the internet. So, <laughs> so I learned that, that we were officially stair pilled that day and it would be great to learn a little bit more about that reform <laughs> because I am not a building code person, but it's a huge part of the discussion. Well, if you're interested in zoning, you're going to love building codes. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I hope you're right about that. <laughs> Um, well, thank you very much for joining me today. Again, it was great to, to hear a little bit more about your perspective on this. And hopefully you can join us at some point in the future. And thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Nolan. Thanks, Abby. It's a pleasure. Let me show you what I'm about to do.